Hey, church, if you have your Bibles, can you start opening to Ephesians chapter one? Our, our goal today is to do a review. January 24th, 2021, we started a series called Union with Christ. And the goal and the objective was to teach you a doctrine you maybe have never heard of, which was union with Christ. And what we did starting January 24th, 2021, was our goal was to look at every in Christ phrase in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And so Pastor Todd is our lead pastor, does the majority of the teaching, and he's been walking us through Ephesians chapter one through three, looking at every single one of these times that Paul, in this letter, uses the phrase in Christ or in him. And so we've been in this book for months. And before we move on to uh, further teaching, we wanna just take a Sunday to review. We've had uh, little breaks in between. We had Easter and Good Friday. We've done other uh, one-off sermons where we've taken a little bit of a break. And so we just want to, in 30 minutes or less, get, take a moment to summarize everything you've learned since January 24th. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna ask all the elders to step in today and help summarize the main paragraphs or the main uh, chunks of text from Ephesians chapter one through three. So we're each gonna take about three or four minutes, take a chunk and help you summarize uh, what we've learned so far. And our goal today is for you to just to celebrate what is now true of those of us that are now in Christ. So we are gonna give you six so remember statements this morning. So if you're taking notes, you're gonna be looking for these six statements that say, so remember. And we just want to remind you and celebrate what Christ has done on our behalf, how he is, has changed us, he has made us new. And we're excited to just celebrate with you this morning. So at the end of our sermon today, you'll have six beautiful statements that are only true for those who are in Christ. So I'm gonna take the first chunk. We're gonna look at Ephesians chapter one, verses one through 14. And if you look at verse one, verse one tells us Paul's goal. He tells us his aim. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Our first in Christ phrase in the entire book starts with Ephesians chapter one, and it teaches us something about ourselves we don't know naturally to be true. It teaches us that unfaithful people like you and I have been declared faithful. Amazing news, and it's all because of our standing in Christ. He tells us something that's not naturally known, that for you and I, people who know ourselves well enough, we would declare ourselves unfaithful. Before a holy, righteous God, when I compare my deeds to his, I find myself unfaithful. Yet Ephesians chapter one, verse one says, there's something that has been done for you, something that has been declared over you, and that is a declaration of faithfulness. And it comes from this doctrine, this beautiful mystery of this phrase called in Christ. And then verses three through 14 teach us how we got to that place, how unfaithful people could be declared faithful. And we become declared faithful or in Christ because, 
verses one through 14 teach us, God chose us, God predestined us, God adopted us, and God redeemed us. To summarize this, we became children of God because he planned it and he has the power to pull it off. Praise him. Paul then reveals to us, not only are we God's children, but God lavishly loves his children. And that is really good news. Not only do we get to be his children, but he lavishly loves his children. Ephesians 1 Verses one through 14 is such great news. And after great news, after great news, after great news, we just celebrate to people who deserve bad news. That's who we are. We deserve condemnation. We deserve judgment. And yet verses three through 14 is good news upon good news upon good news for those of us who deserve bad news. And why does he do this? Why did he save us? Why did he declare us faithful? Why does he declare us righteous? It's all to the praise of his glorious grace. So church, just take a moment, breathe, relax, and remember. So church, remember, in Christ, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Edgar. So continuing uh, in Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23, because of the Ephesians brothers and sisters having been chosen and having been predestined for adoption and having been uh, redeemed, and Paul, we find Paul thanking God for these believers and also praying for them. And in so doing, what's so interesting to us is that he presents us a model prayer for how we can pray for one another. And at the core of his prayer, uh, at the core of his prayer is his desire and his asking to the Father to give them a spirit of wisdom and of revelation for them to remember to know three specific things. The first one is, if you notice, um, in um, verse 18, he wants them to know the hope to which they have been called. This being, obviously, his promise of eternal life. And this, is, this hope that he's making reference to is not a hunch, is not a half uh, wishing, but instead it's a 100% full confident assurance that this will take place, that they will spend eternity with him. So that's the carrot that he put, that we ourselves should put in front of us all the time, this hope that we have. Secondly, he wants them to know and experience the riches of the glorious uh, inheritance in the saints. And this is making reference to the fact that... Uh, God accomplishes his glorious things <clears throat> through the church. And so um, he is making them aware <clears throat> and wanting them to remember that, uh, that uh, they will experience those glorious things through uh, the church. 
And thirdly, he wants them to know the, uh, the immeasurable greatness of his power. In other words, the power that is available to us believers. So all of those glorious things, uh, even uh, supernatural things that take place through the church are possible because they are done through this immeasurable power, which is the power that resurrected our Lord, uh, Jesus Christ. So all of this knowledge and wisdom and revelation that he is asking for, uh, it's really delivered to us or to the believers uh, through the Holy Spirit not through the eyes, the physical eyes in our head, but through the eyes of our heart, meaning spiritual eyes. So remember, in Christ, we can confidently pray for one another. So we're going to jump into Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And Paul starts out here, talking, saying, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So as Travis was talking about all of this good news, now we're talking about deadness. We're not, we're not talking about suffering. We're not struggling. We're not just barely getting by. We're not even dying. We are dead. So, so why are we dead? Let's take a look here in, in Ephesians 2, kind of at our rap sheet of sorts. So we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're Verse two, we're following the ways of the world, which gives a much darker visual when you think about it in context of, of today as well. We're following the prince of the power of the air, which is, is referencing Satan clearly here. So we're following the world. We're following Satan. We're called sons of disobedience, so it's not getting any better. Now we have this not so endearing nickname of sons of disobedience. We're living out the passions of our flesh, which Paul also speaks in Romans 8 about those whose minds are set on the flesh are dead. And he speaks, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We're carrying out the desires of our body. It continues on in verse 3. And Paul finally ends with this kind of terrifying exclamation point at the end and calls us children of wrath. I mean, just think about that for a second. We have the wrath of God pointed directly at us. Through three verses, we're not feeling very good. This is, this is a pretty clear picture of death, and I'm not sure if, if there's one that would be any clearer. But God, being rich in mercy and great in love by which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses. So, so Paul is referencing back to verse one there, or reminding us of our deadness, made us alive in Christ. I love how this is written. He didn't just say being merciful and loving. He said, but rather being rich in mercy and great in love. Now remember too, God is love. He's not just loving like me when it's convenient or when it's easy or, or when you know I'm having a good day and I'm happy. He is love. And so he continues on, so that he can show or display for all of creation, for all of eternity, his immeasurable grace and love towards us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
not of your own doings, so not of our own works, not of our own good deeds, not of our own achievements, giving, baptism, insert anything in there, but it is a gift, just a gift. We didn't do anything to earn it. We didn't do anything to deserve it. Let's consider that gift for a second in light of where we were at at the beginning of this section of scripture, back to being dead. So if we want to kind of cross-reference this also to Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8 says, while you were still sinners, Christ died for us. So in other words, while we were dead, following the ways of this world, while we were sons of disobedience, while we were living out the desires of our flesh, while we were children of wrath, while we were considered children of wrath, Christ died for us. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us this gift and for our God who put this on display for all of eternity to see. So remember, in Christ, you've been saved through faith. Okay, so Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, and the ESV says this, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hand. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. A few points about this text. Remember, we have peace with God. Peace is this idea of wholeness. It is the idea of of multiple things coming together to be complete. So the gospel is not just peace and reconciliation and wholeness with God, as we heard about in chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. It is also peace and reconciliation and wholeness with others, people who don't look like us, act like us, talk like us, vote like us, think like us. In the same way that Christ in his flesh brought together the Jew and the Gentile, he still is today in his church bringing together every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. So remember, in Christ we have peace. All right, bear bear with us. We're going to land this plane pretty soon. Um, I'll be going over chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And if you recall... um, when this passage was preached, it was over two different sermons, and it was regarding the mystery of the gospel revealed. The mystery of the gospel revealed, or in other words, it was God's divine surprise. And a key verse for these 13 verses would be verse 6. 
verse 6 says that this mystery, or God's divine surprise, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Guys, we are fellow heirs. We are members of the same body. That's the great surprise. That was the divine surprise. That the, the Jews were surprised because they, uh, they didn't have some backstage pass or VIP access. And everybody else was surprised. The Gentiles were surprised because they didn't have, or they now have access to the Father. That's in verse 12. We have access to the Father. And, and it, was, it was all umbrellaed under this gospel that united us. So the mystery of the gospel revealed is that we have a united church, all under one. There's no first-class or second-class citizen. There's no, oh, this guy's a Christian, but this guy over here, he's a born-again Christian. No, we're all born again. That's the mystery. That's the gospel. And, it is, and it's all, at, at the end of verse 6, it said it's all through the gospel, right? And so if it's the gospel... This good news, this salvation is, watch this, it is, it is exclusively in Christ. If it's through the gospel, it's, it's exclusively in Christ, but it's inclusively available to anyone that would receive him. Exclusively in Christ, but inclusively available to anyone who'd receive him. And if it's this gospel uh, that, that is uh, revealed to us, and uh, this, uh, Jesus said, um, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. Jesus wasn't being, uh, he wasn't trying to cut anybody off. He wasn't trying to say, well, you're in, but you're not. You're good enough. You've worked really hard, but you didn't. He was actually saying, no, if you want the truth, if you want access to God, you've got to come through me. But it's inclusive. It's for everybody that believes. It's for everybody that would humble himself before his God. That's the gospel. The gospel is the great equalizer. It, it, it takes the low. It takes the, the broken, the people with busted hearts, the, the people that are just trying so hard and they just can't get there. Well, the gospel says, yeah, that's right. You can't get there. We're all right here, and we're going we're gonna to raise everybody up, and now everybody has access to God. Everybody has access. There's no backstage pass. It's all through the front door. That's the gospel. So, Remember that in Christ, or we have salvation exclusively in Christ, but salvation is inclusively available to all who would receive him. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, for the second time in the first half of this book uh, that we call uh, the letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is drawn to intense and intentionally focused prayer on behalf of the believers who live in Ephesus. This is his first response to their great need in light of all that we have in Christ. The term in Christ is a recurring theme throughout this book, and it describes a relational position that we have with God because of the sacrifice of Christ that becomes the basis for our reconciliation to God the Father, and also enables and is reflected in our reconciliation with all the believers in the family of God in heaven and in earth. So in verse 14 of this passage, the apostle declares, for this special reason, for this cause, I bow my knees before the Father, and I pray 
for you. And this is his prayer in summary, that they will be able to comprehend clearly and experience fully what it means to be in Christ. Listen to his prayer as he recorded it for us in the passage. In verses 16 through 19, he declares that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, Paul knew that for them to fully understand and completely experience all that this life-changing relationship provides, it would require supernatural revelation and divine intervention. So he invokes the help of all three persons of the Godhead, He prays that the Father, in verse 14, through the Spirit, in verse 16, in the Son, that is, in Christ, which is the context of the entire passage, that they may enable them internally and spiritually to completely comprehend the many dimensions of God's love and to completely experience all that it means to be fully reconciled to God, resulting in our reconciliation and oneness with all believers, setting the stage for God to be continually glorified in and through his people, the church. Paul realizes that this will not happen automatically, nor even by their best human intentions or efforts. So he calls out to God, who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think to do these things for them, in them, and through them, so that the glory of God will continue to be seen throughout all generations. So remember, in Christ, we have access by faith to every dimension of the otherwise unknowable, life-changing love of Christ and to all of the fullness of God. So, to this end, let us also bow our knees to the Father. Paul then ends chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 with this incredible summary statement where he says, Now, after all we've just declared, after all this good news that we've just shared with you, poured out upon you, I'm so excited to just summarize it now. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever Amen. You can almost hear Paul just filled with emotion where he brings these three chapters of rich theology to a conclusion. Now, now to him, 
Here is the result of all these beautiful truths. Someone deserves praise and glory. He just expounds for three chapters the wonder, the mystery, the beauty of the gospel. And he says, somebody, someone, all these three chapters of good news, someone deserves praise. Someone deserves glory. Somebody we should give a round of applause to. Somebody we should stand and lift our hands to. Somebody we should sing about. Who is that person? Is it, is it the recipient of these gifts? Is that the person we should praise and honor and glory? Or is it the giver of all these gifts? That's what he wants to remind us of as he finishes up chapter three. Who is worthy of the praise? Is it the receiver of the gifts, us? Or is it the giver of the gifts? And he expounds, it's not us. We're just mere sinners who have been granted access. No, it's the giver of the gifts who deserves all this praise. The giver of all these gifts is the one who deserves glory and honor and praise. His name should be lifted high. And then how? How does he receive this glory and praise? How could somebody so worthy receive this much glory and praise? And he says this profound statement, it is through Christ's work through the church. Ponder that for just a moment. How does Christ, how does God the Father receive praise for all he's done through the church, through Christ? You see this, Christ's saving work and changing work in the church is what brings God the Father glory throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's what's happening here. It's what's happening globally. Christ saving and, and uh, forgiving sinners, reconciling them to the Father. It's that work which brings God glory for all generations forever and ever. Think about that. As much glory and praise as the beauty of creation brings God. Just for a moment, think about creation and its wonder and its splendor, how creative it is, how beautiful it is, how amazing it is. Think about how much glory that brings the Father. The mountains, the stars, the sun, a beautiful sunrise, flowers, the changing of the seasons, all that brings glory to God, for sure. It makes us look up, it makes us honor a creator, it makes us glory him. As much glory as all of these declare to God the Father, the thing that brings him endless glory is Christ's saving work amongst the church. Isn't that incredible? When God saves sinners, that's what brings him the most glory. The church brings God the Father the most glory. When sinners repent, that's what brings God the most glory. When you and I worship God instead of ourselves, that brings God the most glory forever and ever, amen. It says this, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen.
So remember, in Christ, we declare the glory of the Father. Or because of Christ, we can declare the glory of the Father forever. So church, we've just poured a lot of content, a lot of information on you, but our goal was to summarize one thing, the doctrine of union with Christ. January 24th, we said we wanna discuss with you a doctrine you maybe have never heard of. Today, April 25th, our desire is that you have now heard of this amazing doctrine that you would be able to articulate this doctrine, explain it to somebody else, that you'd be able to celebrate this amazing doctrine with us. We've spent almost three months celebrating the doctrine of union with Christ. I pray that it has enriched you, it's, it's deepened your faith, it's helped you see the beauty and wonder of God and the work of Christ more deeply. And I pray that we would just celebrate this good truth together. Our hope is that this is the doctrine that you now are so glad you've heard of. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.